0: The National Archives podcast series 1968 Year of Revolutions presented by Mark Dunton. Now, 1968 was certainly a momentous year. One can argue that it was the, the most eventful year internationally since the end of the Second World War. A rebellious impulse seemed to sweep the world. Street protests became the common international currency and in countries as varied as France, Poland, Japan, the United States, Mexico and many others, the ruling authorities were challenged by strikes, demonstrations and barricades. it's, um, It's interesting to compare 1968 with another famous year of revolution, 1848, because that year saw a series of revolts across Europe including France, the Italian states, the German states, Hungary and greater Poland. And there were a variety of causes industrialisation, urban poverty, crop failures, revolt against autocratic rule and demands for liberal reform. There are some parallels with 1968 that can be drawn. There are also a variety of causes Or triggers for the revolts of of 1968 but the chief difference is that the revolutions of 1848 were largely restricted to Europe whereas the revolutions of 1968 were really on a worldwide scale. I think it's also true to say that in 1968 the revolutionaries in all the different countries had a shared sense of something in common Whereas in 1848, the rebellions were rather more disparate. There were some particular factors at work in 1968 which explain this sense of communal rebellion, this sense of international solidarity amongst those engaged in protest. So, why single out 1968 as such a pivotal year? Why is it unique? Journalist and author Mark Kolansky, in his book 1968, The Year That Rocked the World, identifies four historic factors at work. The key factor is opposition to the Vietnam War. Kalansky described it as a war that was hated so universally around the world that it provided a cause for all the rebels seeking one. This was the glue that held things together, and it explains the sense of international solidarity that I've referred to, though I would put that phrase in inverted commas. You know, there was actually a great deal of factionalism and ideological differences among the protest movements across the world. But as I've said, there were things they had in common and the common thread was opposition to the Vietnam War. The American civil rights movement was also very influential. At the time, the methods it adopted were new and original The idea of the sit-in sprang from civil rights campaigns. The term global village was often used in the 1960s alluding to a shrinking world due to the expansion of electronic technology particularly television. As Kolansky puts it, television was coming of age but was still new enough not to have become controlled, distilled and packaged in the way that it is today. A fourth factor Alienated generation, the generation that grew up after World War Two was very different to the World War Two generation, or rather, they felt different. The young did not want to be like their parents. They embraced modernism, the shock of the new. Some were proud of the part that their parents had played in standing up to fascism during the Second World War. In other cases, there could be shame because of collaboration. Sometimes there was a conspiracy of silence surrounding the Second World War. So what of the the British experience? Mark Donnelly has written, there was always a slightly diluted taste to the British version of 1968. The confrontations with British police did not, in general, match the scale and level of violence which was seen in the clashes with the authorities in France and the United States. Donnelly explains why British campus radicalism did not make the same impact as its equivalents in France and America. Firstly, the size of the British university population was too small. Secondly, there was little popular support for rebellious students in Britain. In France, the use of batons and tear gas by the French police won public support for the French students. In Britain, there was a tendency to see student protesters as work-shy and (laughs) self-indulgent. Thirdly, only a minority of of students in Britain were actively involved in protests. Student apathy was to some extent a problem then as well. Even so, there were some protests of note. The problem here was that there were concerns relating to the ways in which universities and colleges were run. There were sit-ins and other disturbances at art, art schools and colleges including Hornsey Art School, the London School of Economics and universities at Leicester, Essex and Hull. Now, if 1967 had been the year of peace and love, the mood of 68 was much harder with a real edge to it Let's now look at a couple of famous images to set the mood for this year. The Black Dwarf was a political and cultural newspaper published between May 1968 and 1972. And this was published by a collective of socialists in the UK. Often it's identified with Tariq Ali who edited and published the paper until 1970. Che Guevara was an Argentine Marxist revolutionary who was executed in Bolivia in 1967. And this iconic image of him, taken in 1960, was very popular in 68, and still is now. Well now I'm going to move on to the main body of my talk, going to take you through a chronological tour of 1968. And the path may meander from strict chronological order at times, but the main direction is from the start to the end of the year, January to March. On the 5th of January 1968, Radio Prague announced the appointment of Alexander Dubček as first secretary of the Czechoslovak Communist Party. At first, most Czechs had no idea who he was. He seemed rather awkward and apparently he was often a dull speaker. But Dubček was non-authoritarian and he was good at listening. Through his liberal reforms, he became an inspirational figure for the Czech people. At first, he acted cautiously. He simply didn't give any guidance on censorship rules. By the end of January, you could buy newspapers from all over the world in the centre of Prague. And this was a big deal after 20 years Stalinist-style government. In April, Dubček announced an action programme of reforms which included increasing freedom of the press and freedom of speech. He called for socialism with a human face. This period of liberalisation in Czechoslovakia became known as the Prague Spring. But now we move to the Vietnam War. A quick in a nutshell, a bit of background to the Vietnam War. The French left Vietnam in 1954 and it was divided into a North Vietnam, ruled by Ho Chi Minh, that's the communists, and of South Vietnam which was in the hands largely of anti-communist factions. By 1961, the northern communists had made huge encroachments into South Vietnam territory through the Viet Cong. The US, concerned about stopping the spread of communism, responded with ever-expanding direct military involvement. On January the 30th, 1968, the Viet- Vietnamese New Year, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong launched the huge Tet Offensive. The offensive included attacks by the Viet Cong on cities throughout South Vietnam, including Saigon, and at Saigon, the US Embassy was directly attacked. Though the North Vietnamese were forced back and took heavy casualties, American losses were also very heavy and the Tet undermined the confidence of the American people in the war. The 18th of February 1968 saw the announcement of the highest US casualty figures for a single week during the entire war. 543 killed, 2,547 wounded in the course of a single week. Vietnam has been called the first television war And TV images showing the fierce fighting and the scenes of suffering had a huge impact on American public opinion and had the effect of galvanising the anti-war movement worldwide. In July 1967, Tariq Ali helped to set up the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign, the VSC, which organised a series of anti-war protests outside the US Embassy at Grosvenor Square. The first of these took place in October 1967. The demonstration on the 17th of March 68 saw the most violence. The crowd was estimated by some to be over 10,000 protesters. When the march reached Grosvenor Square, the crowd broke through the police lines and spontaneously attempted to storm the US Embassy. They were met with a charge from the mounted police. A minority of demonstrators had looked forward to a violent confrontation with the police and the police certainly did not hold back with the truncheons as Grosvenor Square became a battlefield. The fighting lasting for over two hours and images of conflict were projected into Britain's living rooms in a famous ITV World in Action documentary. Now there were a series of demonstrations at Grosvenor Square in 68 and I'm going to jump ahead at this point to July because we have a file concerning one organised by the ad hoc July 21 committee on July the 21st. Now in common with other marches this had started with a meeting in Trafalgar Square. This was followed by a march to Hyde Park via Charing Cross Road, Oxford Street and Grosvenor Square. According to a police report, a group of about 500 demonstrators stopped at the south side of Gros- Grosvenor Square and refused to move. The demonstrators, who appeared to be principally from the Midlands, t- they tore down the wire netting of the garden enclosure and entered the gardens. They were stopped by police and arrests were made. Some minutes later, a further entry was made into the gardens and more wire netting was broken. Branches of trees were pulled down and it was several minutes before police were able to restore order and clear the gardens. And according to the report, this militant section of demonstrators, having been moved on from Grosvenor Square, caused damage to property and threw missiles at police as they were forced out by the police into Hyde Park. Now, the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign announced plans for another big anti-war demonstration to be held on the 27th of October. This led to a frenzy of speculation. In September, the Times claimed that a small army of militant extremists plans to seize control of certain, certain highly sensitive installations and buildings in central London next month there were calls to ban the march but Home Secretary James Callaghan resisted these calls and he persuaded the cabinet that the right to protest should be upheld. In the event the major part of the march passed off peacefully. There were some clashes with police again in Grosvenor Square but there were far fewer injuries and arrests than there had been in March. Even so things could get rough at the demonstrations as shown by this photograph from the demonstration at Grosvenor Square on the 27th of October 1968, capturing the moment when Constable Derek Rogers was kicked in the face by a demonstrator. Now we move to Britain's economic position. And in January 1968, Britain's economic position was rapidly deteriorating. The aftermath of the devaluation of the pound in November 1967 was a very difficult period indeed for Harold Wilson's Labour government. Its popularity plummeted as government spending was cut and taxes were raised. Chancellor Roy Jenkins wanted at least £800 million pounds slashed from public expenditure. He wanted the planned raising of the school leaving age to 16 deferred, He wanted to reintroduce prescription charges for the NHS. He demanded that British forces should be withdrawn from east of Suez by 1971. And he wanted to cancel the order for the American F-111 strike aircraft. There was an exhausting series of cabinet meetings in the new year to discuss the cuts. In this extraordinary letter to Harold Wilson, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson expresses his concern about the plans for defence cuts in strong terms, and I quote, I cannot conceal from you my deep dismay upon learning this profoundly discouraging news. If these steps are taken, they will be tantamount to British withdrawal from world affairs, with all that means for the future safety and health of the free world. And Harold Wilson, in reply, sends sends a telegram to Lyndon Johnson on the 15th of January, 68. And these comments convey the sense of torture that the British cabinet had gone through. He said, they are bitter decisions for us to have to make and only our conviction that they are vital in the long-term interests of Britain has made it possible for us to stomach them. We have to come to terms with our role in the world and he appeals to the US President by saying, believe me, Lyndon, the decisions we are having to take now have been the most difficult and heaviest of any that I, and I think all my colleagues, can remember in our public life. Britain's special relations with the US had reached a new low. As Dominic Sandbrook puts it, Wilson's refusals to bow to Johnson's pressure over the F-111 hinted at a new defiance in Downing Street. There was no longer any pretense that Britain might send troops to fight in Vietnam. Nor was there any illusion that the British would continue to hold the line in the Middle East and South East Asia against the spread of international communism. Right, I'm now going to uh, relate a dramatic episode from March 68 involving this man, George Brown, deputy leader of the Labour Party and a senior cabinet minister. Now he was a central and important figure in the Labour administrations, he was a politician of note but (coughs) also his reputation for heavy drinking was often the subject of comment. He had also a number of personal differences with Harold Wilson. He had challenged Wilson for the party leadership in 1963 and lost and he was resentful about that. He was also renowned for his resignations. At the time of the episode I'm going to relate, he was Foreign Secretary. Now, by March 68, the financial pressures on the British government were worse still. Investors were losing their confidence in the dollar, which was being badly affected by the cost of the Vietnam War. And investors wanted to sell their dollar and their sterling holdings and invest in gold instead, which was thought to be a safer bet as it ever is. The Bank of England started suffering heavy losses from its currency reserves and on the 14th of March came further news of huge losses of reserves. The Americans wanted Britain to close the London gold market. Wilson and Jenkins were forced into emergency decisions. They agreed to the US request and decided to declare the next day as a public holiday in order to close down the London foreign exchange market. Around 8pm Wilson decided to contact George Brown, the Foreign Secretary, to let him know what was happening. The problem was that Brown could not be found. The extent to which Wilson tried to contact Brown that evening became a major bone of contention between them. Now the move to declare the 15th of March an extra bank holiday required a hastily convened meeting of the Privy Council and this was arranged to be held in Buckingham Palace at 12.15am involving Harold Wilson, Roy Jenkins, Peter Shaw together with the Queen. Apparently the Queen was in quite a chatty mood that evening. (laughs) By the time that Brown had found out about the meeting he was furious. The way he saw it, he had been deliberately excluded from a vital decision. To him, this was Wilson acting in a presidential way In the words of Dominic Sandbrook, all of Brown's pent-up resentments against Wilson now came to a head. Here we see the notes of an impromptu meeting of half the Cabinet, which was held at Downing Street at 1.15am on the 15th of March. This was an explosive meeting, as we can see from the dialogue. I just quote part of it. The Prime Minister replied that he had tried for over an hour to find the Foreign Secretary. The Foreign Secretary, that's George Brown, repeated that there had been no telephone call. The First Secretary of State said that there was no point in pursuing this dispute. There might have been some misunderstanding in the transmission of the message. The Foreign Secretary said there had been no misunderstanding. (coughs) The Prime Minister was trying to cover up a monumental muddle. He did not accept his version of the episode. At this point the Foreign Secretary left the meeting. From published reminiscences of ministers, it seems that this scene may have been even more colourful than the official version (laughs) suggests. Some of the ministers present thought that George Brown may have been drunk at the meeting. Tony Benn recorded in his diary, maybe Harold did think George was drunk. He was certainly behaving as though he were. According to Richard Marsh, Minister of Power, George Brown, quote, got up to leave the Cabinet table, walked around and stood breathing flame and fury down Howard Wilson's neck. It looked as if he was about to hit him. Brown sent Wilson a letter of resignation the next day. Brown had resigned many times before, but this time there was no telephone call urging him to reconsider. Even so it was a very difficult matter for Wilson. Our files show that he wrote 17 drafts of his reply to Brown's resignation letter before he finally accepted the Foreign Secretary's departure. So, we move on and we move to America. Martin Luther King was, of course, the most significant leader of the American civil rights movement. King was a Baptist minister who had received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 for his campaign to end racial discrimination and segregation by means of civil disobedience. And this was underpinned by his non-violent strategy and philosophy. In 1967, King made clear his opposition to the Vietnam War. Given the urban riots in America of 65 and 67, by 68, King was concerned that his message of non-violence was no longer being listened to. In 1968 King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference organised the Poor People's Campaign which demanded that poverty be addressed. In late March 68 King went to Memphis, Tennessee to support a strike by black garbage workers who were demanding higher wages and better conditions of service. A demonstration on the 28th of March was marred by violence which was apparently caused by some of the marchers. On the 3rd of April King returned to Memphis to try and organise a non-violent march and he delivered his famous I've been to the mountain top address. The following day King was shot and killed as he stood on the balcony of of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. The assassinations led to riots in over 100 cities in the US. Sir Patrick Dean, British ambassador in Washington, wrote in a telegram of the 7th of April both the tragedy and the funeral are basically national in character, but the circumstances are completely abnormal, and the assassination has had as great an effect outside the US as within it. Soon after the assassination, news spread that King had been killed by an escaped white convict called James Earl Ray. And here, there's a particular British connection. Two months later, on June the 8th, 1968, James Earl Ray was arrested at London's Heathrow Airport. He had tried to leave the UK by using a false Canadian passport in the name of Ramon George Snade. Here we see the extradition process, which quickly swung into action. Home Secretary James Callaghan has has signed this extradition order of the 13th of June addressed to the Chief Magistrate sitting in Bow Street and it emerged that Ray, he was also wanted for other offences including a bank robbery in the UK. The extradition went ahead and and by July the 22nd Ray was in court in Memphis, Tennessee he confessed to the assassination on March the 10th, 1969 and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He tried to withdraw his guilty plea later on, but he was unsuccessful and he died in prison in April 1998. So now we backtrack a bit to April. And on the 20th of April 1968, Enoch Powell, Conservative MP for Wolverhampton South West, made his highly controversial Rivers of Blood speech at the Midland Hotel in Birmingham. Now the background to this was Roy Jenkins' plans to extend the scope of the 1965 Race Relations Act. In 1968 the Labour government introduced a new Race Relations Act which would ban discrimination on racial grounds in particular aspects of life such as housing. Powell objected strongly to the proposed legislation, and this was the catalyst for his speech on April the 20th, in which Powell railed against the proposed changes and gave his warning of the consequences, as he saw it, of continued unchecked immigration from the Commonwealth. The title gave, given to his speech arose from its allusion to Virgil's line from the Aeneid, the prophecy of, quote, wars terrible wars and the Tiber foaming with so much blood. Powell said, as I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. The day after the speech, Edward Heath sacked Powell from his shadow cabinet. Heath said of the speech that it was racialist in tone and liable to exasperate racial tensions. It is a fact Uncomfortable as it might seem that Powell won a considerable amount of support for his views reflected in supportive letters and opinion poll ratings. On the 23rd of April, the race relations bill was being debated in the House of Commons and something like 1,000 Dockers went on strike and marched on Westminster in support of Powell. And these Docker strikes grew in size, but some opposing voices were also heard. There was a march on Downing Street Calling for Powell's arrest. The Attorney General, Sir Elwyn Jones, received a number of representations that he should institute proceedings against Enoch Powell in, in respect of the speech. The Attorney General consulted with the Director of Public Prosecutions and decided that the probability of conviction under the Race Relations Act of sixty five was low. The law officer's opinion, shared by Harold Wilson, was that there is much to be said for not volunteering information about the decision at the present time. This was of course largely because the situation was so inflamed and sensitive and so the government decided on this brief and bland statement on the 2nd of May announcing the Attorney General's decision. The Attorney General is not going to take criminal proceedings against Mr Enoch Powell. Now In May 68, the focus switches to France and Paris in particular. Now in France, May 68 saw a series of student protests and a general strike that nearly toppled General de Gaulle's government. A wave of student strikes broke out at several universities in Paris and there were major confrontations between the French police and the demonstrating students. The controversial actions of the French riot police, the CRS, and their use of batons, appeared to inflame the situation still further and increase wider public sympathy for the students. In the annual review for 1968, held here, Mr. Ledwidge, the British Chargé d'affaires in Paris, explains, the university students touched off the May explosion. Discontent had been growing among them for some time against outmoded teaching, rigid administration, lack of amenities and lack of jobs for graduates. In his view, some of the leaders were extremists who wanted violent revolution, but most of their followers were chiefly concerned with university reform. The workers too had become increasingly dissatisfied with General de Gaulle's regime. Prices were rising and wages were being kept down On May 13th, the major trade unions called for a general strike. Within days, French industry ground to a halt. Up to 10 million French workers were involved in the general strike. Negotiations between the government, the union leaders and employers began on May the 24th, but an agreement was rejected by the unions. By late May, some leaders of the left felt that revolution was possible in France, and this telegram from Sir Patrick Riley the British ambassador in Paris reflects the very peak of the crisis on May the 29th. It reads, the French government now looks in a state of disintegration. The ministers who arrived at the Elysee this morning found that the council of ministers had been cancelled and that General de Gaulle had left. De Gaulle appeared to have vanished. There was, at this time, a fever of speculation in Paris. Had de Gaulle left for good? In fact, he had flown to Germany to consult with his generals to gain a pledge of military support if the situation demanded it. He then returned to Paris to make a defiant speech announcing the dissolution of the National Assembly with elections to follow on the 23rd of June. After de Gaulle's announcement... The May 68 revolution ran out of steam. The students and workers ultimately wanted different things. British diplomat Sir Patrick Riley quoted the perceptive words of one commentator. While the students want to cut down the tree of society, the vast majority of French workers simply want to enjoy more of its fruits. As I've said, the May 68 movement ran out of steam but it still has a great deal of resonance for the French people. There was a great deal of discontent with the Fifth Republic's rather authoritarian approach and Mr. Ledwich, the British diplomat I quoted earlier, certainly picked up on that in his report. Many see it as a period when cultural and social values shifted. Many who were there at the time reminisce about the wonderful time they had, exchanging ideas, debating, thinking the unthinkable, there was an explosion of graffiti and posters in Paris with slogans such as be realistic, demand the impossible. President Nicolas Sarkozy made a speech in April of this year which blamed the 68ers, as they're called, for France's current problems. In his view, the anything-goes spirit has left a legacy of intellectual and moral relativism. So we see that the issue of May 68 it's still very live today for the French nation. And now we move to America and Senator Robert Kennedy, who had declared his presidential candidacy on March the 16th, 1968. On March the 31st, President Johnson had stunned America by announcing his decision not to run for a further term. Bobby Kennedy's campaign focused on a programme of racial and economic justice, he called for US withdrawal from Vietnam. He had a great deal of success in galvanizing crowds and he campaigned with great vigor. On June 4, 1968, Robert Kennedy's presidential candidacy had received a major boost when he won the California primary. The next day at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, after addressing his supporters, he was fatally shot by Sahan Sahan, a 24-year-old Palestinian. Kennedy died at the Good Samaritan Hospital on June 6th. Prime Minister Harold Wilson's personal telegrams to Robert Kennedy's widow, Ethel, are striking because they are so heartfelt. This telegram of June the 5th was sent while he, while he was fighting for his life and it reads, Mary and I heard this morning's news with deep shock and horror. Our prayers are with you. This message really conveys the sense of shock felt at the time. And here is another telegram to Mrs. Kennedy that was sent on news of Robert Kennedy's death. At this moment of tragedy for yourself and all your family, Mary and I send you our deepest sympathy. We hope that it may be of some consolation and strength to you to know that you and yours will be in the thoughts and prayers of millions of men and women throughout Britain. And I think a clerk there has written... (coughs) signed it for Harold Wilson, it was certainly approved by him and sent. Of course, you know, all messages of condolence are written in sympathetic terms, of course, but there's something very striking about the very heartfelt messages, I think, here. And the US ambassador in Britain spoke of the very deep emotional reaction in Britain to the news. The shock in America and across the world was compounded by the fact that the assassination came just one month after that of Martin Luther King and of course the fact that Robert's brother President John F Kennedy had also been assassinated back in November 63. Sir Patrick Dean British ambassador in Washington stated that the cause of the poor has in the space of two months lost its only two nationally known and trusted moderate spokesmen. There was a worry at this time that extremists would exploit the situation. But our diplomats also reported a trend towards conservatism in America, which was very prescient as Republican Richard Nixon was to go on and win the presidential election in November 68. In a television broadcast, Harold Wilson appealed for reasoned solutions instead of conflict and violence. He said, If the sense of horror of all our people is as real as I believe it to be, then we must join with the leaders of American democracy in the resolve that this time a Kennedy shall not have died in vain. And we move now to August, actually, and Czechoslovakia. It was on the evening of the August 20th that the Presidium of the Czechoslovak Communist Party was conducting a routine session. At 11.40pm, the Czechoslovak Premier, Ulrich Cernik, returned from a phone call to inform the Presidium that an invasion of Czechoslovakia was underway. That night, armies from five Warsaw Pact countries, the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Mm. Poland, Hungary and East Germany, invaded the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, the CSSR, and by the morning of August the 21st, Czechoslov- Czechoslovakia was occupied. Now this message headed top secret flash is from Lord Chalfont to Lord Carradon and it has a strong sense of drama and immediacy. At 1.30 a.m. the Soviet ambassador had called at Lord Chalfont's house and delivered an oral message for the Prime Minister explaining the, explaining the invasion supplemented by a text message. This version of events that the Soviet Union had come to the aid of Czechoslovakia after an appeal for help was flatly contradicted by the Czech government who stated that their country had been invaded without their knowledge. While the invasion of August the 20th and 21st came as a terrible shock to Dubček and his supporters our files show that the British and American governments had discussed the very real possibility of Soviet invasion in the previous month. A Foreign Office memo to Washington dated the 22nd of July sums up the position of the Western governments in a candid and to the point manner. The West was not prepared to go to war to save the Hungarian revolution and it can be assumed that Western governments would adopt a similar attitude in this case. In these circumstances, military action would be useless and could be extremely dangerous. So would any statement which could be construed as a threat of such action. Well, this is a brutally frank statement, but it can be seen as real politic. The British ambassador in Prague, Sir William Barker, stated, Overwhelming moral condemnation of the illegal invasion is virtually the only practicable way open to us to exert influence on the five governments. And moral condemnation was certainly forthcoming. In a passionate and eloquent speech in the United Nations Security Council, Lord Carradine, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs and British Ambassador to the UN, called it a a tragedy not only for Czechoslovakia, but for Europe and for the whole world. He condemned what he called the evil invasion and says, how shocking that a small and brave people should be so bullied and betrayed. This is part of a message from Sir William Barker, British ambassador at Prague to the Foreign Office dated the 23rd of August. In stark and powerful terms, it describes the brave defiance of the Czech people two days on from the invasion. And I'll read it. The people in Prague and other accessible towns and areas are visibly bitter, grieved and defiant. Most young people wear miniature Czechoslovak flags with a black mourning band Big national flags have been added to statues of Charles IV and King Wenceslas. Virtually every building on the main streets of Prague bears inscriptions denouncing the Soviet invaders. Outlined stars with swastikas inside them. Duplicated texts of of resolutions by every conceivable Czechoslovak organisation or other hostile notices. On every street, somebody is thrusting leaflets onto passers-by. Russian soldiers are often full-heartedly harassed and challenged to explain their, their presence. And there is an obvious purpose to demonstrate that though occupied, the Czechs are not daunted. It's a powerful testimony. And uh, some Czechs went up to the tank crews and asked them simply, why are you here? The young Russian troops found that question difficult to answer. Czech radio stations stayed on the air as long as they could before they were forcibly closed down. Over 70 Czechs and Slovaks were killed during the invasion and hundreds were injured, some severely. In April 1969, Dubček was replaced as First Secretary by Gustav Husák. Dubček's reforms were reversed. Now we move... (laughs) to the rather unlikely topic of Christmas cards. But it is connected with the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, here we have a memo sent to PM Harold Wilson from an advisor, I think it might be Michael Palliser, but I'm not sure from from the initials. Um, Essentially, in so many words, he's advising Harold that as the Czechoslovakian crisis is still very fresh in everyone's minds, it might be wise not to send Christmas cards to the usual Russian leadership circle and just restrict yourself to short messages of personal greetings to Kosygin and Mikoyan. Note his dry reference to the Russians and their fellow sinners over Czechoslovakia. As can be seen by the note in green ink which Harold Wilson wrote, he writes, on the Russians it seems petty to change the practice. It creates the maximum, no- maximum annoyance with no gain whatsoever. On the whole, I'd like to do the same as last year. And why should the Foreign Office not do the same? We have not broken off diplomatic relations. But the file reveals that the Foreign and Commonwealth Secretary, Michael Stewart, is in disagreement with the PM. His view is that Christmas cards should not be sent to the Russians this year. And so, the matter goes up for discussion at the Cabinet. (laughs) Only in Britain. uh, Where it was decided that ministers should send Christmas cards as they wished. It was a matter of personal opinion whether or not to send them. So, Harold Wilson got his way. Another rather unlikely topic, the miniskirt project. In August 1968, a government-funded research project entitled Some dimensions of fashion change attracted extensive press coverage. The press take on this was that the study, which was supported by the Social Science Research Council, would answer questions such as, when a girl raises her hemline, what message is she trying to put across? That was uh, actually posed by the Guardian at the time. Now, the the frivolity surrounding this appears to have irritated Prime Minister Harold Wilson. The Prime Minister's office took took the matter up with the Department for Education and Science, the DES, who argued that the press reports were, well, wide of the mark and that the research would contribute to the development of a predictive theory of fashion change. It is clear from the letter shown here that Wilson was not convinced Here we see Mr. Dorr of the PM's office writing to K.A. Smith at the DES raising further questions about what became known as the miniskirt project. K.A. Smith replies that it is not claimed that this project is anything but a piece of basic research and that Dr. Gibbons, Dr. Gibbons is the man behind all of this uh, research, he's reported to be appalled by the outcome of his interview with the press and he strenuously denies that he made any mention of miniskirts as the object of his research. Wilson, concerned about government spending, asked for the expenditure of the Social Science Research Council on research projects to be monitored closely. It's generally true to say that since the partition of Ireland in 1921, the Westminster Parliament had taken a laissez-faire approach to Northern Ireland which was run by a Protestant and Unionist government based at Stormont. As Mark Donnelly has written in his book, Sixties Britain, the electoral system, council house allocation and employment procedures were all run in favour of Protestants, supported by the B-special armed militia, free from any attempt by the government at Westminster to protect the rights of the sizeable Catholic minority. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, NICRA, was established in 1967, and NICRA was influenced by the American Civil Rights Movement. During this period, the Stormont administration was led by Captain Terence O'Neill, who was Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. NICRA became increasingly frustrated at the slow pace of reform under O'Neill's government, and they started to use street protest as part of a new strategy. The first major civil rights demonstration took place in August 68, and this passed off without any significant violence, but it was a different story in Derry on the 5th of October. This march ran into RUC roadblocks. Two cordons of RUC policemen trapped the marches between them. The RUC then charged and made heavy and indiscriminate use of batons, and they also deployed a water cannon. This was all captured on film and images of the violence appeared on TV screens. And this document refers to a meeting held at 10 Downing Street on the 4th of November between Northern Ireland's PM, Terence O'Neill, accompanied by two colleagues, plus Harold Wilson and James Callaghan. And at this meeting, Wilson really laid it on the line to O'Neill. It says, I'll just quote a bit, The Prime Minister informed Captain O'Neill and his colleagues of the very great concern that had been expressed on all sides in Great Britain over the handling of the Civil Rights Association's demonstration in Londonderry on the 5th of October. Stemming from the very full coverage on the part of the television and radio programmes and the press. And at the meeting, Wilson warned that If O'Neill did not push through reforms, subsidies to Northern Ireland would be cut. O'Neill did announce a package of reforms on the 22nd of November, but many in the Catholic community regarded this as too little, too late. While the Unionists attacked O'Neill for giving in, as they saw it, to the civil rights movement. By January 69, the situation in Northern Ireland was deteriorating fast, sectarian violence between the various Catholic and Protestant stroke Unionist factions escalated. In July 69 there were riots throughout the province. By August 69 law and order was at the point of meltdown and Home Secretary Callaghan sent in troops to Derry and Belfast. Now by the end of 68 many people were desperate for a good news story and Who can blame them? But this need was met by the historic Apollo 8 mission. Now, back in May 61, President Kennedy had said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. The Apollo 8 mission of December 68 brought this prospect a great deal closer. Its purpose was to test the flight trajectory and operations for getting to the moon and back. Apollo 8 lifted off on schedule on December the 21st and the crew took three days to travel to the moon. The craft orbited the moon. This was the first time that human beings had entered the the gravitational sphere of influence of another celestial body. And Apollo 8 achieved a number of firsts the first pictures taken by humans of the earth from deep space and the first live TV coverage of the lunar surface. The craft orbited the moon ten times. In a TV transmission, Commander Frank Borman described the moon as being a vast, lonely, forbidding expanse of nothing. Each man on board read the story of creation from the book of Genesis. Borman finished the broadcast by saying, And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck and a Merry Christmas to all of you, all of you on the good Earth. Beautiful photographs such as these helped to influence the environmentalist movement. And Tony Benn was Minister of Technology at the time of Apollo 8. And here we see a draft telegram message of congratulations to NASA, the National Aeronautical and Space Agency. And it reads, congratulations to you and all your team at NASA on the superb engineering and scientific work that made the flight of Apollo 8 possible and to the three astronauts who carried out their historic mission with matchless courage. Just briefly, some other events of 68 that I just want to mention. March the 1st saw a violent clash between student demonstrators and Italian police in Rome, which became known as the Battle of Valle Giulia. Many were injured on both sides. There were waves of student demonstrations and protests against the ruling Communist Party in Poland. There were sit-ins, marches across cities in Poland, from March March 8th to March 28th in particular. The demonstrators demanded an end to censorship and free trade unions. The communist authorities used anti-semitic propaganda to divert public support for the demonstrators. April the 11th saw the attempted assassination of Rudi Dutschke, a German student leader. He survived being shot but his injuries contributed to his death in 1979. The Tlaloko massacre took place on October the 2nd, 1968, in Mexico City, when police and military shot student demonstrators, killing over 300 people. This happened 10 days before the 1968 Summer Olympics opened in Mexico City. ETA, the Basque separatist terrorist organisation, committed its first murder by killing the police chief in the Basque city of San Sebastian. And 68 also saw waves of student protests in Japan. The Vietnam War was a major driver with this, but there was also a great deal of infighting amongst the factions of the left. There was a major dispute at Tokyo University. So, moving to a conclusion, in many ways, 68 was a terrible year. I mean, there were so many terrible and violent events that year, and yet, Many do look back on it with nostalgia. So, what is the legacy of 68? Now, one could argue that the 68 movements ended in failure. In France, following the events in May, the political rights were returned to power for a decade, and in America, Republican Richard Nixon successfully appealed to socially conservative voters and won the presidential election of November 68. And the Prague Spring was also brutally crushed. So far in in 2008, 1968 has been under intense focus again in the media, who have delighted in commemorating all the anniversaries 40 years on. From all the media interest, it's clear that 68 is still the cause of much debate. And there are two main schools of thought. One sees the uh, rebels of 68 as posturing spoilt brats who were self-indulgent and egotistical. Others see them as giving birth to the new left and praise them for leaving a legacy of innovative ideas. 68 can be read in so many different ways depending on your political viewpoint. Some argue that the 68ers were responsible for a right-wing backlash against everything it represented against liberalism and permissiveness. Others see it as a time when valuable lessons were learned by the left. What Mark Donnelly called the organising impulse continued into the 1970s. As he puts it, for student radicals, the need to organise around a grievance were not forgotten and student sit-ins were to continue to be a regular feature into the 1970s the Northern Ireland civil rights movement was obviously influenced by the 68 protests and by the American civil rights movement. Some argue that the social and political turmoil of the 1970s had its roots in 68. There was a darker side toward this in terms of the growth of terrorism. Some say that 68 created the climate which gave birth to terrorist groups. So where do I stand in all this, you may wonder? Um, and it's, uh, it's very tempting just to sit on the fence. But I, I will just give you my thoughts. I would, I would sub- subscribe to non-violent methods to change society in line with sort of Martin Luther King's strategy. Had I been 18 in 1968 instead of 8, <laughs> there, there, I am sure that I would not have been throwing missiles at the police. I think there was a lot of naivety around at the time. Many student radicals were very impressed by Chairman Mao's regime. And I'm with John Lennon when he sang, If you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone, anyhow. As I've said, the uh, debate about 68's been raging in the media. Actually, I was impressed by an argument made by Timothy Garton Ash in The Guardian not long ago, when he argued that the 68ers changed little in comparison with those who caused the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe and the downfall of communism and in fact many of the 68ers were involved in the revolutions of 89 but I think there's also something impressive about the creativity of 68 the intellectual energy and the sheer wit of the French slogans and artwork of May 68 for example And the pop music culture as well, which was bound up by the spirit, bound up with the spirit of 68. It was this revolution of non-conformity and free thinking, which I think was the lasting legacy of 68, a revolution in the head. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 22nd of May 2008 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved.